Hey everybody, it's another episode of DWMOD, that's Disagree With Me or Don't. As always, thanks for listening guys, thanks for tuning in. Hey, we got a lot to get through this week. I'm going to add a new segment called Quick Hits because, let's face it, you know, sports talk, uh, it's a 24-hour news network here and we don't get to be on the air every day. We don't get to be on the air every three days, you know, we're recording an episode every week or so, you know, sometimes it's two weeks in between, so we're going to add a new segment called Quick Hits, kind of get us up to speed, give us a chance to talk about things that have already been talked about, which is actually kind of cool if you think about it because most times now on this 24-hour news network they're jumping right to trying to report something that winds up being wrong or it winds up being way misconstrued or in typical new sports talk fashion it winds up just being completely dissected and turned into something it's not so that two guys can just argue on the air so you can listen to them so for us to attack in a retrospect gives us the chance to really lock down what's going on and talk about you know the aspects of it anyway we'll get the quick hits but the rundown for today we got a lot to get to man we're going to touch on the baseball hall of fame they just came out with the class for this year uh we're also going to touch on ncaa recruiting uh, i'm going to bring you up to speed on a lot that's going on with the ncaa recruiting because of the covid and stuff going on and a lot of inside sources on that this thing's going to blow your mind, what's going on with uh, NCAA recruiting, especially in regards to football, and that's what we're going to get into. And we're also going to address the NBA state of affairs, all right? And let's not forget about NFL free agency because it is heating up quicker than a junkie spoon out there. Draft is right around the corner, so we'll hit that real quick too. But, man, enough about what we're going to do. Let's just do it. Yep. Yes. <laughs> I'm Mikey Wilson, and this is DWMOD. Yeah! Touchdown! Michael Jordan is a baby and a liar. Down! Hut! 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 Isaiah Thomas deserved to be on the Dream Team, and Jordan kept him off it. Ready! Aw, Lions fans drinking that Kool-Aid Super Bowl! Hey, disagree with me or don't. That's how it works. Hut, hut. Quinn and Patricia are in job-saving mode. They're going to get fired this year for it, and we're screwed. Again. Down. Now, Jim Harbaugh is supposed to be the quarterback whisperer. He can't develop any of the four- and five-star guys he's brought in. I don't get it. Hut. They're not going to put sweet Lou Whitaker in the Hall of Fame. Please, baseball writers of America. What a bunch of old white assholes. Ready? The greatest professional wrestler ever. The macho man, Randy Savage, yeah. Cause the cream of the crop will always rise to the top, yeah. Hey, disagree with me or don't. That's how it works. All right, it's March, everybody. We are in March. March Madness right around the corner. Looking forward to that, ain't we? I mean, we didn't even get to have that last year, so we're looking forward to that this year. Should be pretty exciting. Everybody in Michigan, you gotta be fired up. The Wolverines look like they got a shot. But I think that this tournament's going to be really fun this year, man. Really, really fun because all your traditional uh, powerhouses that dominate college basketball, uh, they're not dominating right now. I expect maybe a few of them to make a little run in the tournament here. But the big dogs this year are all programs that at the beginning of the year nobody had on the radar, Michigan included. Juwan Howard got them going up there. Tell you what, Fab Five got the legacy moving. He's head coach now. They look real good, and I like their chances. And another team out of the Big Ten, Illinois, who had them on the marker. Going to be fun to see a team like that rocket out in, in the NCAA tournament. You got Gonzaga up there. You got Baylor. These are all teams that are not traditional powerhouses. Should be a fun, fun watch this year. 
But we'll get to that after championship week this week. Everybody's going to settle out the field, see where they land, get those seeds going, and we'll be jumping on that next episode. But just want to touch on that, man. It's going to be fun. Now, the last time we all talked was right before the Super Bowl. I think I think the day before the Super Bowl, right? You know, so it's been a couple of weeks. I apologize for that. Again, you know, COVID rearing its ugly head. We're trying to get guests. I think pretty soon here we're going to be in a place where we're going to be able to get some guests back on the show. We got the vaccines rolling out. Uh, you know, everybody's getting back to normal as much as we can, a little bit, trying to stay safe. But, you know, we get some guests lined up, agree to do the show, and then things happen. They fall through, pushes us back a week. But it is what it is, man. And I thank you guys again for sticking with us. So that's why we're adding this new segment now. Going to be quick hits. We're going to get up to speed on a couple of things that have been going on over the last couple of weeks before we got on the air. So let's get it going with quick hits. First things first, quick Super Bowl recap, man. Not going to beat it to death because it's already been beat to death. Tom Brady's out on the boat throwing the trophy around. Lombardi trophy being thrown all over the place. And why not? These guys see what the, the hockey players get to do with the Stanley Cup, man. And I guess the family of the, of the trophy, uh, the guy who made the trophy originally, the, the family came forward, demanded apology for our silversmiths everywhere. That's what they said. Demand an apology to silversmiths everywhere for disrespecting the trophy like that and blah, blah. I mean, who is not tired of it anymore? In this day and age, everybody getting their 15 minutes be because they're outraged or upset about something. Shut up. Your trophy gets to, you know, your father's trophy is respected thoroughly. It gets to be you know, the epitome of all of football at the highest level, professional football. Uh, just be happy with it. I mean, shut up. You got to get on air and complain that it was being thrown around to get your 15 minutes. And we're all tired of it. We're tired of it. So that's one quick take. Much love to everybody that jumped on the internet and, and gave us a shout out for all the videos we posted right before the Super Bowl. We posted a few videos, uh, you know, the hilarious little uh, magnet board with the helmets. and But anyway, we threw out some stuff that I uh, personally thought that I would see the Buccaneers trying to do up front of the defensive line to try to get at Mahomes and cause him problems that nobody thought were possible to cause him. And, you know, hey, I, I doubled down and said it probably won't work. He's Mahomes. He's the best. But this is something I think could do that will cause some problems. Putting Sue on the edge, pushing, bringing Shaq Barrett around the other way, bringing him up inside, trying to get. Anyway, it, it worked. Some of the stuff we put up there, they did. They tried. It worked. And much love to everybody that jumped on it and, and gave us credit for that. That was pretty fun, man. You all know me, guys that played with me and stuff. You know, I, I'm a defensive line guy. I love the stuff. I love to get down in there and try to figure out how to cause problems with the you know from the defensive line position. And that was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to see. And nobody expected Tampa Bay to dominate Mahomes and Chiefs the way that they did, man. And it was it was kind of fun to watch, man. I like the Chiefs. I really do like the Chiefs. I hope they win a bunch more titles. I love Patrick Mahomes. I think he's one of the most fun players I've ever seen in my lifetime. But it was fun to see a team like that get dominated. So anyway, let's get to what we're all dying to talk about that happened in the Super Bowl. The streaker. The streaker, man. It's a ballsy move. Anytime you do something like that at a championship venue, I mean, if y'all listen to the episode with Anthony Finelli in the Akron Holy War, you know I'm in on that stuff. Throwing an octopus on the ice, stand the cup finals, down in Raleigh, fighting my way out of the building. I'm all for it, man. It's fun. It's fun. And this dude hits the field in the Super Bowl. And, and of course, you know, the cameras all go away from it like they should. You can't be encouraging that kind of stuff. But I don't know if any of you have had the chance to listen 
to the radio broadcast of that event. Kevin Harlan is great, man. He does not miss a beat and goes right into calling the action. If you haven't listened to this thing, uh, here it is. Second down, 20, 5.03 to go. Someone has run on the field. Some guy with a brawl. And now he's not being chased. He's running down the middle of the 40. Arms in the air and a victory salute. He's pulling down his pants. Put up your pants, my man. Pull up those pants. He's being chased to the 30. He breaks a tackle from a security guard. The 20, down the middle, the 10, the 5. He slides at the 1, and they converge on him at the goal line. Pull up your pants. Take off the bra and be a man. Hilarious, huh? Hilarious, man. I was put onto that by a couple of buddies of mine after they had heard it somewhere being played. They had sent it to me because that's something that I always say. So I found it hilarious because I always say, my man, my man. And they would, oh man, they were busting my balls over it. But hilarious. <coughs> keep up the good work, Kevin Harlan, man. He is one of the best play by play guys. You got to love that voice. Oh man. That's great. Now let's just address the security guards really quickly because this is something I find hilarious, right? Uh, these security guards at these, these sporting events, they're cops. These are cops, you know, off-duty cops doing the security on the field there, making sure nobody gets on the field. And make no mistake about it, this is their moment. This is their moment. Uh, these are these guys are richer jewels. They are hoping to find the package. You know, before the game, they are not in a place of let's hope everything goes smooth no incidents these guys get together before the game and they're like man let's go over it if there's a streaker if somebody hits the field it's going down it's going to be their moment to prove to everybody and to prove to their high school coach that having them as a backup that only played on the kickoff team and sparingly at linebacker was a mistake their Uncle Rico, if they could have just been in the game a little longer, they could have took them to States. And they're going to prove to everybody on that team in their Super Bowl moment. Oh, yeah, I'm going to get on the field out of the Super Bowl. If a streaker comes, I'm taking them down. And you can see it all over their faces as soon as this guy hits the field. These guys are barreling out there like Rudiger on a Wednesday practice acting like it's a Super Bowl. They are full speed, and it's for one reason. And it is for one reason only. It is not because they feel uh, the players on the field are in any kind of danger of the guy in a thong and a bra running around with his hands in the air. Okay. They know there is no imminent danger to anybody else. This is not an act of heroism. This is, I am going to light this dude up on TV and prove to everybody I'm a football player. They know Coach Watkins is sitting at home watching the game and he recognizes him on the field and he's going to see his mistakes. And the only thing that happens is pure vindication for Coach Watkins as he sits back easy in his lazy boy chair and rests on the fact that he was dead on. This dude can't play. These streakers always look like the second reincarnate of Barry Sanders out there. Zigging, zagging, shucking, moving. And these dudes are drunk. These dudes are on the field drunk. These cops are in top physical condition, man. Like, they don't let the big donut eaters be on the field. You look at these guys running, and they look like, okay, this guy's probably an athlete a little bit. He's working out or something. And this drunk dude in the thong will dog all of them and make it all the way to the goal line, man. It is hilarious. And Coach Watkins sits back in his chair and goes, yeah, Oh, yeah, I knew he wasn't going to get him. It's hilarious to me every time, and it is obvious that in the pregame, they did no pursuit drills. You can see that clearly. And my only issue with the streaker, uh, this guy has no field awareness. He's got no field awareness. He puts in all the work. 
makes all the moves, gets all the way down there, and then he slides too early and he's down at the one. He don't even get in the end zone. He's down at the one. Anyway, hilarious and fun, and apparently the guy made like a million dollars on it. I guess he bet on himself. He bet that there would be a streaker at the Super Bowl at one of these casinos, and then he had a buddy of his take the field first, so they converged on him and left an opening, and then this guy hit the field, and he collected like 700000 I don't know. That's the internet rumor. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. I doubt it, but hilarious either way. All right, on to the next one, on to the next one. <laughs> Baseball Hall of Fame. Now, disagree with me or don't. Uh, This is the biggest bunch of contradictory, hypocritical assholes that think they hold a bunch of power. Uh, These guys, you know where I'm at with these guys. They're so full of shit, I can't even take it. But they released the results of the 2021 Hall of Fame ballot. Who's in this year? Nobody. Nobody. Now, you know how this thing works. You got to get 75% of the ballot to get in. Okay, closest guy this year? Kurt Schilling, 71%. Now, you can disagree with me or don't all day, but you're wrong if you disagree. Uh, Kurt Schilling's a Hall of Famer. This guy's a Hall of Famer. He's one of the greatest postseason pitchers in the history of baseball. This guy, he's storied from the Bloody Sock to the Diamondbacks World Series run to, I mean, this guy did nothing but perform in the postseason every single time. If you had a game seven, there's probably like five or six pitchers in the history of baseball you'd have on a short list you want pitching that game. Schilling's probably one of them. I mean, this is a guy who's won well over 200 games, 3,000 strikeout club, and the only reason he doesn't get in, and they said it, this is not speculation, they said it. They don't like his politics. This guy does say stupid stuff. Do I disagree with him politically? Yes. Do I think he's probably a bigoted, racist idiot? Yes. I do. I do. Does that have anything to do with what he did on the field? No. Should he be in the Hall of Fame? Yes. Enough with the canceling everybody. Enough with the, this guy said this one thing about this group of people, so that means he didn't accomplish anything in baseball? Just stop. We're tired of it. Call him an idiot. Call him a fool. Don't have him out to sign autographs. Don't bring him to your card shows. Don't give him any press on TV. Fine. But give him his plaque. He's a Hall of Famer. Same people that want to cancel a guy like this don't even follow baseball. They want to cancel this guy for being an idiot, which I agree is an idiot. I agree. But these are the same people driving around with the Michael Jackson's greatest hits and their radio in a car. You know what I mean? Come on. And if you're following this story, big credit to Kurt Schilling. Big credit to Kurt Schilling. When he fell short and they came forward, a lot of the voters, and said, well, I don't like what he said about his politics. I don't like his attitude about politics. When they came forward and said that, Kurt Schilling came forward, and I guess he, I think he issued them a letter I read somewhere, or, or it was a statement, whatever, but he issued to the Baseball Hall of Fame, please remove me from the ballot. He knows he's probably getting in next year. They just want to make him wait because of the things he said politically. He said, you know what? I don't need it. You can all kiss my ass. Take me off the ballot. I don't want your consideration. I don't need you fools to tell me I'm a Hall of Famer. I'm out. Just take my name off. Uh, kudos to him. Good for him. Because these same hypocrites that bashed on the steroid era and vowed they'd never put these steroid guys in the Hall of Fame. Uh, Barry Bonds and Roger Clements have now climbed up to 63% of the vote. So if not next year, maybe the year after, these guys are going to go in the Hall of Fame. Two of the biggest guys on the juice list, Barry Bonds for sure. For sure. Make your case for Roger Clements if you want. It was later in his career, whatever. He was putting up giant numbers in World Series runs while he was juicing. But Barry Bonds, I mean, yeah, he probably could have done closer numbers to the numbers he did without the steroids. But he did them. And he did them for years. 
And he broke the home run record while he was doing it. And he's hitting 72 home runs while he's doing it. He went ass over apple cart crazy with the numbers while he's on the juice. I'm sorry, man. You're out. And these same hypocrites will bury, bury Gary Sheffield and and they'll bury Manny Ramirez on this list. Manny Ramirez, 500 home run club. Uh, Sheffield, 500 home run club. Both these guys, you know, tons of hits. are More than well deserving, both these guys, for the Hall of Fame. And Sheffield's at 40%, and Ramirez is at like 28%. Now, if I'm not mistaken, I think Ramirez got nailed for some PED tests like way at the end of his career when he wasn't even producing anything. I mean, he's clearly jumping on to try to stay alive in the league. You know what I mean? And Sheffield, nothing. His name popped up on a list somewhere once, and that's it. That's all they ever got on Sheff. His name popped up on a list somewhere. You know why? They don't like Sheffield. We've covered this before. They don't like him. He was an asshole to the media, so they're going to stick it to him. What a bunch of hypocrites, man. You know, you're getting ready to put Clements and Bonds in the poster children for, for you know, uh, steroids in the, in the steroid era. And Sammy Sosa. Sammy Sosa's buried on here at 17%. Buried. Why? Because his numbers went crazy when he was on the juice, right? Just like Bonds. This is all bullshit. And you can kiss my ass. Lou Whitaker's still not on the list. Lou Whitaker is still not on the list for the Hall of Fame here, but Scott Rowland, Scott Rowland's what third, fourth on your list here in votes. Scott Rowland's well over fifty percent here to be put into the Hall of Fame, and his numbers can't even match Lou Whitaker's numbers as a second baseman in a dead ball eighties. I mean, you guys just you, you pick who you like. It's ridiculous. I'm out on all of it. <coughs> Final case in point. I'm looking at your list right here. Uh, Jeff Kent is tenth on your ballot. Jeff Kent has thirty percent. Jeff Kent an asshole? Yeah. Does teammates not like him? No, they did not. Was he an asshole to the media? Yeah. People that know him personally, do they say he's kind of a dick? Yeah, they do. Uh, does he have more home runs than any other second baseman in the history of baseball? Yes. Is he second, I believe, second all-time in RBIs for second baseman? Yes. Is he top five, if not top ten, in all the hitting categories for second baseman? Yes. This guy's arguably the best power-hitting second baseman of all time, was an MVP, and he's racking 30% of the vote because you don't like him? Uh, baseball Hall of Fame. Kiss my ass. <coughs> all right. NFL free agency. Let's dip into it real quick. The draft is right around the corner. And let's start with the Lions real quick. They decided yesterday that they would not franchise tag uh, Galladay. Kid's 27 years old, reported during the offseason. They offered him a, a contract extension for several years at like $19 million, which would have put him in the top five pay for receivers in the NFL. But, of course, that was when we were moving forward with Matthew Stafford and we were, you know, like we talked about last year, we're going to be competitive. We knew we weren't, but they thought so. He wisely turned it down because everybody in the building except the people at the top floor knew this thing was getting blown up at the end of the year and nobody wanted to be stuck hanging around here. Now, look, I get it. We're moving forward. We're bringing in golf. We're blowing this thing up. We're starting from scratch. We already addressed that in another uh, episode. I get all that. It's being reported that the whole receiving squad is gone. Amendola's gone. Uh, they're not going to bring Jones back. He's 31 years old. He's a free agent, you know, unless he's coming back on the dirt cheap. There's plenty of other takers out there. Jones is walking. He's gone. And then they, and then they announced that we're not going to uh, franchise tag Galladay. Uh, who who the hell is, is golf throwing the football to? Not that it matters. Look, we're in a rebuild, three, four games. I, I'm fine with letting them all go. But disagree with me or don't. I mean, you franchise this guy for 16.4, you bring him in, and right before the deadline, uh, there's going to be takers for receivers that want to make a playoff run. This guy's one of the best receivers in the league. Uh, for $8 million for half a season, you get to trade him for some more draft capital. 
I mean, you could move him for a second-round pick or something before the deadline. So for $8 million and a second-round pick, I think I franchise tag him. I mean, it might be a risk, but anyway, that's my take on that. <coughs> Moving on to J.J. Watt. Man, what an announcement that was, right? He, Him and Houston are going to part ways. They're going to release him. He's going to sign wherever he wants. And we're getting reports everywhere that he initially, oh, he's going to go to Pittsburgh and play with both of his brothers. No, he's not because they're so up against the cap out there. They're screwed. That ain't happening. We knew that. Uh, he's going to go to the Packers. He's, you know, grew up in Wisconsin, played for the Badgers, blah, 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 Central Michigan to begin with, then went to Wisconsin, played for the Badgers. Uh, you know, everybody said, oh, Packers, hometown kid, make a Super Bowl run. They need defensive help. Maybe that's going to be a landing spot. And the consensus here to everybody was he knows he's at the end of his career. He walked away from a ton of money in Houston. He wants to chase a Super Bowl, right? This guy wants to try to get a Super Bowl before he's done. Free agent chasing a Super Bowl. Then he lands a contract with the Arizona Cardinals. Like the Cardinals is your, I think I'm going to win a Super Bowl here in the next two years. Two years, 28 million. I mean, it's 14 million a year. I mean, that's like, I don't know. I feel like somebody would have given him 9-10 to make a Super Bowl run. I don't understand it. He just really strikes me as a guy that's ultra competitive. Uh, his legacy has always mattered to him. He's always done things right, and, and a Super Bowl is really important to him. And then at the end of the day, you take a couple million dollars to go play for the Cardinals? I, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they make a run. But uh, last I checked, they're in the NFC West. I mean, the Rams just got Stafford, and they've got the best defense in the damn league. Uh, Frisco's got, if not the second, the third best defense in the damn league, and their offense can run the ball down your throat with that offensive line. Uh, and Seattle, Seattle. I know there's a bunch of yammering that Russell's not happy and Russell's going to leave. Russell ain't going nowhere. He ain't going nowhere. That's trumped up by the sports talk and the 24-hour news media. Uh, he ain't going anywhere. I just don't think that was your best bet, man. I, but, hey. Good luck to you. I mean, I love J.J. Watt. Good luck to him, but I don't get that one. Now, we know the biggest news of the offseason in the NFL just landed yesterday in Dallas. Uh, they finally gave Dak his money, right? They finally gave Dak his money. And I'm going to tell you my take on this is hey, I'm happy for Dak. You know, he, he gambled on himself. He bet on himself. It paid off for him. I love to see players get their money. Uh, that being said, I also feel terrible for Dak because – he is going to be losing a ton of football games in Dallas and the rest of his career for the next five years is going to be, I hope you enjoy the money because you ain't going to be enjoying much of anything else. Now, I understand they're in the NFC East and they could still win some games and stuff, but disagree with me or don't. This is the Dallas Cowboys, Dallas Cowboying. I mean, this is what they do. They screw it up all the time. I mean, Dak getting hurt at the beginning of the year last year was the golden goose for them. You suck the rest of the year, you're no good, and you wind up with the seventh pick overall, and you can walk away from having to pay Dak now and draft the quarterback and play him because you ain't ready to make a Super Bowl run this year. You ain't ready to make a playoff run this year. You've got the worst offensive line in football. You, you can't block for the guy you handed a ton of cash to in Ezekiel Elliott. You can't even block for him. You have the worst defense in the NFL. I mean, they have arguably the worst defense in the NFL. You can't win games in the NFC East, and you're throwing $42 million a year at Dak Prescott moving forward? You've wrapped up all your cash, and I mean all your cash, on the offensive side of the football, a la 1990s Cowboys, when things were different money-wise then. But you wrapped it all up in, in Aikman and Irving and Emmett Smith. And that paid off, Jerry, uh, when you were a younger man and the league was different. 
all your money now is wrapped up in Amari Cooper, Ezekiel Elliott, and Dak Prescott now. You can't address the defense. You're not going to get any help on that offensive line unless you score big in the draft in your first two picks. You draft starters on both sides of the ball that are pro bowlers. I just don't see it. We've discussed it here plenty of times before. This is not the model to making a playoff or Super Bowl run in the modern NFL. It's getting guys on rookie contracts, especially your quarterback. It's not handing your whole payroll to a quarterback, running back, and wide receiver. That is not going to work for you. This is going to blow up huge. Uh, Disagree with me or don't. Terrible front office move by the Dallas Cowboys, who tried to play chicken the last couple of years. You, If you wanted Dak, you could have kept him a couple of years ago for $10 million less a year if you'd have just given him what he wanted then. But you held out like, no, we're going to show you, and then you turn around and handed him $42 million for four years. Four years. He's going to turn around and get paid again. I mean, bad, bad business by the Dallas Cowboys front office. Congratulations to Dak Prescott. Uh, you bet on yourself. You beat Jerry Jones at the table, which doesn't happen very often, and you're going to enjoy that money and three or four wins a year and being on your back for the next four years. Our last quick hit, we're going to jump on the Carson Wentz train here. Uh, Wentz goes to the Colts. We're all aware of that. And he goes to the Colts for a 2021 third-round pick, and the Eagles will also receive a conditional 2022 second-round pick. Now, that second-round pick will become a first-round pick if Wentz plays on 75% of the Colts' offensive snaps or he plays 70% of those offensive snaps and the Colts go to the playoffs. That's very likely to happen, guys, unless he gets injured. Uh, The Colts are going to go to the playoffs and he's going to play more than 70% of the reps. He's reunited with his offensive coordinator, Frank Wright, from when he was back in Philly when they won the Super Bowl, the year that Wentz was clearly the front runner and going to win the MVP and take them on that Super Bowl run. We all know he blew his ACL out with like two games to go, three games to go. Foles comes in. You know the story. Um, this is a relationship that just went sour, man. Went bad. This guy had a terrible season, a terrible season. He's disgruntled. Coach gets fired. It fell apart. They had to move him, and they did. And they moved him to a team where he wanted to land. So, I mean, good for Wentz, you know, I guess. That's a win-win for the Eagles and a win, you know, for Wentz. Uh, Here's the loser, though. The loser at the end of the day is the Eagles. They got to eat $33.8 million in dead cap money, and that is the largest in the history of the NFL. They were that ready to move on from this guy that they're eating $33.8 million. So he moves on to uh, the Colts, and best of luck to him. That being said, you can disagree with me or don't, but I think you're absolutely going to see a different Carson Wentz underneath Frank Reich in that Colts system with one of the best offensive lines in the league who can run the ball better than any team in the AFC probably, and they have a Super Bowl caliber defense. I think you're going to see a different Carson Wentz. He's going to be rejuvenated, and I really think the Colts are going to make a really good run in the AFC next year. And that's it for quick hits. And I'm being told to make them a little quicker next time. Those were a little strung out, but hey, sometimes you just can't water down what you got to say, right? It's got to be said. So uh, on that note, speaking of taking your time, let me take some time right now to send a shout out to the official beer of the DWMOD podcast, and that's Old English 800. Delicious, man. Get you some Old English 800. And you know what I'm going to say. Have it in the morning. 
Throw a splash of orange juice on it, get yourself a brass monkey, and while you're at it, grab yourself some better made chips and a Fago Pop. You know the message, guys. I'm going to tell you, the greatest potato chips in the world, the better made chips, the greatest pop in the world, I don't know what soda is, the greatest pop in the world, Fago. Get you some Fago and enjoy your weekend with those beverages and those snacks. Man, it's that simple. It'll make your weekend. Also want to take a minute here to talk to you. If you're living on the west side of the state, westernish side of the state in Michigan, uh, I'm going to tell you about a place you got to check out. I'm going to tell you about a place you got to check out because I personally know the owner. Went to college with this guy. He was on a baseball team. You know, I played football and basketball. He played baseball. We were good friends. And he's now got his own distilling company. Okay, it's a Gold Lake Distilling Company. And it's located at 92 East Michigan Ave in downtown Galesburg. And I'm going to tell you why you got to check this place out. Okay. Um, he crafts his own liquor and beer. And I know that this has been a passion of TJ's since when we were back in college. He's always wanted to do this. Now he's finally got his own place and he's doing it. So I know it's a labor of love when he's when he's handcrafting his own cocktails and spirits, beer, wine. They make it all. Okay. It's all made right there at the distillery. And here's the key for uh, killing those hangovers. And here's the key for making it clean, right? Everything that they do to make their their spirits, wine, beer, it's all farm to distillery okay it's all farm to glass everything is organic locally grown farm products from out that way on the western side of the state and that's what they're making all their spirits and beer and wine and and liquor everything is coming from that farm to the glass man so they got a year-round beer garden it's open year-round uh check it out on facebook the gold lake distilling company and they're also on instagram but i'm telling you get on over there Tell TJ that DWMOD podcast, Mikey Wilson said, come on over and get yourself a pint. And you get a pint, and maybe he'll throw a pint in on top of it. Buy a pint, get a pint. And TJ, you let me know how many people take advantage of that, and, uh, you know, I'll pay for the second pint. You let me know, buddy. But anyway, go see my buddy TJ out there. He's great, and I'm sure you're going to have a great time. Now, my next shout-out uh, is to a guy that you don't need to be on any part of the state. You can be in any four corner of the globes if you want to get at this guy. One of my oldest friends in the world since way back in high school. We played ball together. We were best friends back in the day. Grew up in Detroit together. Uh, my man, Bobby Case, he's got his own company called Case Concepts, and they're skyrocketing right now, guys. Skyrocketing all over the globe. People are ordering stuff from him. Now, they specialize in reclaimed barn wood and industrial pipe furniture. He, he makes his own stuff. He, you can make, you know, uh, at bars for your house or little coffee end tables, couches, things like that. Anyway, I'm telling you, get over and check out his website. It's on Etsy. It's the Case Concepts. And let me tell you how popular and how big this dude is getting. The Colorado Rockies recently just did a contract with him to outfit their clubhouses and stuff, their offices and everything. The Colorado Rockies. His stuff is fantastic. Just Google it. Case Concepts. Take a look at some of the stuff this guy's making and get on the website. It's beautiful stuff, man. Congratulations, Bobby. Congratulations, TJ. It's glad to see you guys are killing it, and you guys support him. Check him out and let him know. DWMOD sent you over there. Get some quality stuff. Now, I bet you're wondering why in the NFL free agency talk there in quick hits, I didn't address the Deshaun Watson situation. And I didn't because I think this is a perfect segue to move into this week's main topic, which is the state of affairs in the NBA. Now, the reason this is a good segue is because I feel like this Deshaun Watson case feels a lot like what's going on in the NBA to me. This doesn't feel like a, a Wentz situation where, you know, the relationship with the team has fallen apart. He's not performing very well. He wants to move on. They want to move on. This, that's a different situation. That's some typical NFL stuff. Eating 33.8 is not, but you get me. 
uh, the Dak Prescott thing, he winds up staying. You know, he winds up staying in Dallas. He doesn't demand to be out. He was just holding out for his money. That's an NFL thing. This thing with Watson, although I, I feel he's justified, they screwed this up. The blame is on the Texans front office. Uh, you don't tell a guy like that, you just play and I'll run the front office. No, that that's a franchise quarterback right there. Even if you're going to do whatever you want, you bring him in the room and you sit down and you have a, a cup of tea or a beer, whatever the hell you have down there in Texas, and you make him feel good. You make him feel he's part of it. You, you hear him out. This is on them. And I don't have an issue with what Watson's doing, but I'm keeping a very close eye on how it goes down because this feels like modern day NBA. In the NBA, the players hold all the power now. And we're going to get into breaking down why that is, but they hold all the power. They go where they want. They demand trades like Harden. I'm going to go where I want. I'm going to go to this team and play here on a super team. And the NBA is in real bad shape because of all this, in my opinion. And this Watson situation, we got to keep a close eye on it because this could be a very slippery slope for the NFL. And the NFL is the best-ran professional sports entity in the, in the world. I mean, it just is. And it's because of the way they conduct business. And this Watson deal is threatening to go against everything that the NFL has allowed to happen or has been up to this point. If he he has a no trade clause, right? I mean, he's got the no trade clause. He can pick where he goes and he can pick to sit out. This is a very different situation than we've ever seen because he's also one of the best QBs in the league. Everybody wants him. If he's able to hold Houston over the barrel and get a trade to the A, team of his choice, and B, land there with a ton of other superstars who are ready to all make a Super Bowl run together and then C, make a Super Bowl run, we could be falling off a very slippery slope here for the NFL turning into the NBA, which is not good. Now, this topic here is the main focus this week for a couple of reasons. It's been on my mind for a while, been researching a lot of stuff for a while, but it's also a couple of episodes ago when I got into the, the push for points. You know, I was being kind of broad with some of the things I was saying then because I was trying to just get to the point that offense is being pushed across the league. We know this, all the leagues. Um, and I, I caught some backlash for that. People agreed with me on the baseball. That's dead on. But with the basketball, I got a lot of, hey, you're being old man Wilson, and oh, you're just being cranky old. It's not the way it was, and you like the bad boys. And, and you know, I caught a lot of the NBA's fine, man. It's great. It, you watch it. It's fun to watch. Just for the record, I'm not being old man Wilson when I'm talking about uh, the push for points in the NBA. And let me back it up with a few figures here for you, that the rules have been changed, and they just want all this scoring in the league, okay? And let's just discuss 50-point games. You know how rare it was for 50-point games in the 80s? In the 90s, I'm sorry, 80s and 90s combined, there was probably a handful of them, right? Used to be an anomaly and a holy shit when somebody dropped 50. When Mike dropped the double nickel up in the garden, everybody went, holy hell, right? Now, let's fast forward to 2010. Do you know how many 50-point games were scored in 2010? One. One 50-point game. 2011, only two the whole season. 2012, only three the whole season. You follow me here. One, two a year. That's what's going on. So from 2010 until 2012, that's three NBA seasons, there was only six 50-point games. Do you know how many 50-point games there were in the month of March in 2019? The month of March, seven. More than those other three years combined, okay? From 2015 to 2019, since we've seen the skyrocketing in scoring, 2015 through 2019, that's five seasons. Do you know how many 50-point games were scored in those five seasons? 72 games. 
72 times someone scored 50 points or more. That means we're likely now to see a 50-point game every week. Once a week. It went from once a season to once a week. So I'm not being old man Wilson about the push for points here, guys. And don't give me this uh, better athletes and they train better and they're more focused on their sport and they eat avocado toast now and they focus on their skills more because we're talking 2010, okay? In, in five years, athletes didn't get that much better. Now, back to the point. So that's why I want to address this. Um, it's a lot deeper than that, man. It's a lot deeper than is it fun to watch or not? And I'm going to tell you why. It's in real bad shape. And the reason is because of their revenue sharing agreement between the owners and the way ownership has decided to move forward and operate in the NBA under this agreement. Now, understand that the revenue sharing agreement for the NBA is way different than it is from the NFL. And I will give them this benefit of the doubt to one small point. The NFL is the one sport of all major sports in the world that owns a monopoly on itself. I mean, they don't play it anywhere else. You know, it, it's the biggest game here in America. It is America's pastime now. And, but they don't play it anywhere else in the world. So they own football, if you will. Uh, basketball, these guys got to look at it from a place of we don't own basketball. They play basketball everywhere. So if we want to compete globally, which is where they're playing basketball, then we need to be able to reach out globally. Okay, so in order to reach out globally, they decided way back there was going to be this move away from typical fandom and loyalty to teams. See, in the NFL, they have a crazy fan base and people are loyal to their teams. People like certain players and all that, but it's very rare that you follow a player around and then that team becomes your new favorite team. That's not common in football. Football crazies are football crazy locally and you follow your team. That being said. The NBA saw that the dollar sign grab a long time ago with Jordan in the 90s was to brand the players. It's far more lucrative moving forward to move on the brand of players as the forefront of the of the league. And and that was, you know, big time push during the Olympics. They saw that. Game went globally. It, it was a perfect storm. Jordan's the biggest star in the world, and then they compete in the Olympics, and then they go overseas, and you've seen the documentary, those guys are rock stars, and then they understand, oh, we have a global asset here. This is money. This is now bringing China into the mix of, of putting games on TV and stuff because of this guy. So at that point, they decided to move down this road of loyalty to the players from a fan perspective and a business perspective, let's have the people be loyal to the players. The franchises really don't matter. They're placeholders. Now, it's important to the league in order to move forward in that fashion to have your star players, your big star players, playing in your biggest markets. You know, that's not going to be beneficial for uh, the NBA if Kobe Bryant had played his career in Charlotte. That's not going to work as much as it worked like it did for the Lakers, you know, if he would have played, you know, in Minnesota or something. Not the same thing. So you understand that. Now these stars need to get to major markets. And the stars want to get to these major markets too because in the NBA, it's all about your brand. You're making money on your shoes. You're making money on all kinds of stuff that's your brand. And understand this. The owners of these small market teams are just as much to blame because they were all in on this. This started around 2012, okay? In 2012, the NBA reached a new agreement among owners 
that was going to bring in this new revenue sharing system that they use now. So to explain that, by 2012, the owners of these small market teams already started to see this movement was starting to take off big time. Stars are heading to major markets. We really can't compete anymore. And it's hurting us financially. And they cried out, we need to have a talk about this. And when they had a talk about it, the talk went like this. Well, what about if we just take care of you guys? What about if we pool a certain portion of the money that's brought in by all the teams and we share the revenue? So they came up with this system where, in simple terms, they explained to these small market teams, we'll do this. We'll take everybody's total revenue at the end of the year per team. Like at the time, let's say the Knicks make, you know, $340 million this year in profit, right? So they take every all 30 teams, they take their revenue, and then they get an average. What's the average for the league per team? Add them all up, divide them by 30. Here's your average. Then they put a formula in place to say, now take that average and let's keep everybody in the profit margin by setting a salary cap. So this formula kicks out a salary cap every single year based on the total revenue from the league. However much money they made, divided by 30 teams, each team made $150 million on average, let's say. It's more than that. Let's just say $150 million on average, right? So now we need to set the salary cap. And small market teams, listen to us now. We're going to set the salary cap at a place where even at your smaller revenue, you're going to be able to make a profit. So if we're at 150, we'll set the salary cap at 90. No one can spend more than 90. So you can spend 90. Everyone else spends 90. That should keep us competitive spending the same money, right? And you're still going to make a profit at the end of the year. Herein lies the problem. Well, these bigger teams, well, they can spend a little more than 90. Ah, yes, they can. But little teams will make them pay a luxury tax if they do, which means even more money in your pocket because that's more money into the coffer to be divided up with the revenue sharing. So if they go over, they'll pay for it. Oh, okay. So the small market owners get it in their head. I don't even have to put a great product out anymore. I can have a low payroll. I don't have to hit the 90 million mark. And at the end of the year, everybody that made all the money is going to have to share money with me and I'm still going to make a profit. Well, my profit margin is going to be bigger, a la Chicago Cubs for years, if I just don't spend a lot of money on the roster. Now, not all teams did that. But a lot of them were more than happy to do that. And they signed on to this thing aggressively in 2012. Here's how we'll move forward. Cool. Now, keep in mind that revenue sharing in the NFL means everything. There's one TV deal. They all split it. There's one merchandising uh, deal. They all split it, meaning jersey sales are all lumped in together. That money's divided among everybody evenly. It's all straight socialism in the NFL, which works great. They're the most lucrative business that there is. Also, the ticket sales in the NFL. The home team gets to keep 60% of the gate. The other 40% of the gate goes into a pool, which is then all added up and divided among all teams equally at the end of the year. So, for example, uh, Lions at Patriots, right? Patriots retain 60% of the ticket sales for that day. The other 40% goes into a coffer. Every other game, every other visiting team in the league that day, 40% of the all goes into a coffer divided up evenly. Everything's divided up evenly in the NFL. That's how they revenue share. NBA is different, okay? And their final revenue numbers, which decides this formula, which kicks out the salary cap here's what's not included in the nba you're allowed to make your own local tv and radio contract deals that's your money don't have to count it merchandising this is a huge one merchandising don't have to count it so in memphis when nobody's buying memphis jerseys because they don't have a star but everybody's running around in lebron james laker jerseys guess who gets all that money 
the Lakers. And then the Lakers don't have to count that in their revenue and they don't have to share any of that. That's a problem. And here is where it starts to snowball for the NBA leading up to our next time point here, which is going to be 2017 when they revisit this thing. But here's what starts happening over that period between 2012 and 2017. Your superstars are moving to major markets, which has been a thing for a while now, but now we're starting in with the super teams. Okay. Used to be you had a superstar go to, you know, uh, New York or go somewhere. There was enough superstars around the league where you still had like a Dominique Wilkins in Atlanta or you still said you get my point. Uh, You know, now these super teams start. Well, now all the major market teams are eating up two, three, three superstars on a team. Well, now none of your small market teams have any superstars. So what's your fan base there doing? So when Memphis has a regular uh, a game against a, I don't know, Oklahoma City, um, in the middle of the week, who's showing up to watch that game? Nobody. Nobody. And we already addressed how nobody in the town is buying the jerseys of those players, so they're not getting any merchandise money. They're not getting any ticket sale money. Uh, this team is not generating no money. So what do they have to do to rely on trying to make money? Now they got to jack the ticket prices for when the super team comes into town. So when LeBron and the Lakers come into town, ticket prices are higher in Memphis. They're going to charge you, you know, way more money to come and see LeBron and, and, and AD, right? That's how they're going to try to make up for this. What do you think happens when LeBron and AD get to Memphis for the night? They're sitting the game out, load management. They're not playing. Now you got a bunch of fans who bought tickets to see these guys play. They're pissed. They're not playing. And this is a trend now. So now the next time around when they're coming to town, I'm not paying that higher ticket price. I'm not going to because they're not going to play. And me and my kid are going to be disappointed. So now these guys are out that money. And it's starting to trickle. And these owners are starting to realize this deal isn't really good for us anymore because we can't put a product out that's locally worth watching. And here's why that matters with the revenue sharing deal. In order to participate in the revenue sharing, a team like Memphis needs to hit the 70% profit mark of the average revenue per team. So remember earlier we talked about all the revenues added up, divided by 30, and we decided every team on average made 150 million was the fictitious number we're using. So they need to hit 70% of that 150 million in order to participate in full revenue sharing to bring them into the profit zone, right? Well, they were doing that early on, no problem. Now all the superstars are going to all the major markets and now you can't get people in the door. You're not selling any merchandise. Those teams are now keeping that money as well. You're getting no piece of the pie and you can't make the money. And that takes us to 2017. So it's 2017 and we've been operating under this deal for a while now. Toward the end of this half year leading up to 2017, we're seeing the super team movement. We're seeing all the superstars being hoarded up into major markets, right? So Keeping in mind that the only way these teams are making money now under this new deal is for, number one, arena income. What kind of tickets are you selling? Number two, your local market. What's it worth to the local television and radio deals? What are they worth to you? Not very good in small markets because you don't have a product anybody's watching or listening to. Number three is your brand income. How many jerseys are you selling? How many you know Memphis Grizzly hats are you selling, for instance? Those are the three top ways that you're bringing in your total revenue. Not good for these small market teams, any of those three. And here's where number four has been the savior, the revenue sharing. Hit your 70% of the total annual revenue average per team, and we'll make you whole and you'll make a profit with the revenue sharing, right? Now, Adam Silver just this year came out and said for a while now that 40% of the of a team's revenue is made from their gate and ticket sales. They're counting on 40% of the revenue of the year to come from their ticket sales. That's right from Adam Silver. Now, 2017, the owners, primarily of these smaller market teams, they demand to have a special day set aside 
during the owner's board of governors meeting. They want to have this addressed specifically because in 2017, a report on the NBA finances showed that 14 of the 30 teams in the league lost money before collecting the revenue sharing. After collecting the revenue sharing, nine of them were still at a loss for the year. That's a huge problem for a major sports league. A huge problem. A third of the teams in your league are losing money now under this new deal. And what were they most concerned about? Not the amount of the revenue sharing. They're most concerned about the formula in place that kicks out the salary cap because the salary cap keeps going up and up and up every year because the league is very profitable for TV. They're making a lot of money because they can put all the super teams on TV for the games. People are watching. The ratings are good and they get a huge TV deal. Unlike the NFL, where all teams are represented evenly on TV. That's why they still have the Thanksgiving Day game for the Lions and and for the Cowboys when they used to suck and everything. They played on Thanksgiving, not because of tradition, but because there's a rule in the NFL that everybody is entitled to a certain amount of primetime games. And that Thanksgiving Day game counted as primetime. So that's why they didn't take it away from teams like Detroit and, and Dallas when they sucked. They kept giving it to them. Everybody's entitled to a primetime game. Why do you think they keep this Thursday night game around so much? Everybody in the league hates it. Nobody wants to play it. It's not the best football to watch because it's considered a primetime game. So they can throw it to Jacksonville or somebody and they're still within the, the confines of the contract. Everybody's represented evenly. NBA, not the case. Put the super teams on TV, and we make a huge TV deal, which means our profits for the league are way up, which means our salary cap goes way up, which means the gap between the haves and the have-not gets bigger every year. And that was the main focus of this 2017 special meeting. The owners of these small market teams were concerned And I quote, they expressed that the expanding profitability cap could warp competitive balance. If big market teams can still earn fat profits, even while paying the luxury tax for going over the salary cap, they could in theory start hoarding up all of the star players. That last part, they could in theory start hoarding up all of the star players. Well, guess what? It's four years later. And they have. And what led them to the conclusion that this could start happening all over the league? Just one year prior in 2016, the salary cap took such a jump from league profits that in 2016, it was raised by over $20 million in the offseason, which made it possible for the Warriors to sign Kevin Durant. They already had multiple big money contracts winning back-to-back titles, going to a third, winning his team in, in regular season history one year. They're already capped out. The league jumps another 20-something million at the end of the year, and they have enough room now to bring in Kevin Durant. He's not staying in Oklahoma City anymore. Leaves the small market, goes and plays with them. That was the red light to all these small market teams. That's when they started to catch on. This shit ain't working for us. What do you think the financial hit was to Oklahoma City the next season in comparison to one season before when they had Kevin Durant? What's that television contract worth to them now? What are those radio contracts worth to them now? Whether they're up or not in the next two years, they're going to go down. They're going down. You selling jerseys? Nope. The Warriors are getting that money now. That's a big hit to a small team. And that's when these owners started to wake up and go, man, next year it's going to jump another $20 million. And the Warriors, for instance, can sign another major star away from somebody if they want to. This ain't working for us. Now, you take a jump into this season, 2021, and put these two factors together. What we just talked about, how the salary cap keeps getting jumped, skyrocketed every year because of profits, and these guys are leaving. We just discussed that. Now, 
Couple in the newest concern from the small market teams is that post-pandemic, right now, post-pandemic, where they can't even get ticket sales going and shit, they're expecting to lose 20 to $30 million on average from what they normally make. So now you're going to have a, a negative $30 million disparity from where you're normally at financially. And that salary cap number, the NBA just maintained it and claimed, well, pandemic, we can't count last year's numbers. We'll go with the year before and keep it at 109, 110. It's only going to go up even more next year. So a team like Sacramento or the Pistons, who are down $30 million and made nothing, are now staring at a salary cap next year that's going to go up by 10 or 15 more million dollars. The, this, the gap between the haves and the have-nots is becoming unmanageable. You, you can't even make a profit now because you're going to be struggling to come in at that 70%. I mean, shit, the Pistons can't even sell tickets for when the Lakers are in town. Why? Because LeBron and AD are going to sit out, you know, and, and sidebar, disagree with me or don't, but an easy fix to that is you want to do load management, you got to do it during a homestand. You got to do it during a homestand. You want to sit guys out just to get rest? They got to sit out on a home game. Your fans are the ones that eat that. I can't have you going to Detroit and not playing any stars and, and the Pistons can't sell tickets. Anyway, back on track. So nothing gets done but a bunch of uh, head padding and back padding after this 2017 uh, alarm goes off when Durant winds up going to the Warriors in 2016 because of the raise in the salary cap. So nothing really happens. We hear your concerns, right? So how are they managing this moving forward? How are they going to put a Band-Aid on this thing? Because they can't go back. They can't go back and change this deal now. How do you get out of this thing now? You can't. You've created this beast where your stars drive the league now. Loyalty to teams does not drive the league. You know, you're not selling out games in Detroit anymore if you don't have any stars on the on the team. That's just the way it is now. So how do you fix this thing? So they figure they're going to put this Band-Aid on it. Uh, they're still going to let these guys go to these super teams as much as they want. You saw it with Harden. Harden's my example to this Watson thing we're going to tie together. Uh, Harden wants out of Houston. Houston is bent over backwards trying to get him players, trying to bring winners in, trying to, major payrolls, trying to make a run at a title. They can't. He's frustrated. He wants a title. He wants out. He demands out. And he demands to pick where he wants to go. And he lands where he wants to go. He winds up in Brooklyn. He wants to go to Brooklyn. He winds up in Brooklyn. And what does Houston get out of the deal? Nothing. Nothing. They're the worst team in the NBA right now. They're the worst team in the NBA right now. They get nothing out of the deal. They get a bunch of first-round picks. They get a bunch of first-round picks. And now here's where the first-round picks are being used as the Band-Aid for the league. I'll explain. Let's use two teams as an example here, okay? Charlotte and... Uh, New Orleans, the last two big picks that come out of the draft, right? Those are both small market teams. Those are both teams losing money, right? And they can't get a star to stay on the team. I mean, Kimba just left uh, Charlotte a couple years ago to go to Boston, right? So they can't keep stars on the team to make money. But if they can acquire a bunch of these first round picks, use these first round picks, and it's actually as a lottery, literally, because they're gambling on this. But if they can land a star like New Orleans can land Zion, then they can be substantial for a few years now with Zion. They get him on a rookie deal, and now they're selling jerseys. People are watching the games. People are buying tickets to come to the games because they want to see this new star. Charlotte, they got Ball. Ball's having a great year, probably going to be rookie of the year. They, they hit on theirs, right? So now they've got a three-, four-year window where they're going to make a little bit of money because they have someone drawing to the crowd. And here's why this is a Band-Aid, because the teams that are giving away these picks – and they give them away like crazy in the NBA. Why? Because they don't give a shit, right? It, I mean, if you're the Brooklyn Nets and you're in New York, the number one market, why wouldn't you give away four picks to get Harden? Because guess what's going to happen with those four picks? Somebody like Charlotte's going to pick Ball, and they're going to spend all the time and money developing him over four years, and then where's he going to wind up? In New York, probably playing for the Nets, because that's how it's going to go. It's just going to be a revolving door. 
And both sides are happy to deal with this right now. The small market owners are happy to say, hey, I'll take all those picks right now because I have no choice. What's my alternative? And if I land and get a good rookie who draws a lot of people to buy tickets and I can sell a bunch of jerseys for a few years, I'll then trade him to the big market team for what? more picks so I can keep this small little revolving door going of moving in these rookie contract stars in and out because that's all I can do. I can't keep them. They don't have a choice. They got to do that. And the big market teams are more than happy to do this as well because they're like, hey, uh, you take all the risk in the draft. I don't have to have a bust like Sam Bowie. Uh, You take all the risk in the draft. You draft them. You develop them. You pay them for four years. And when they're ready to be a megastar in the league, then I'll take them. I don't have to fuck with the draft. I get stars when they're stars and in their prime. You trade them to me. I trade you the picks. You assume all the risk. You assume all the work in developing these players. I'll reap all the reward and you'll make a little money. I'll make a lot of money. And that's what's going on right now. And the small market teams have no no choice but to go along with this. So I'm just telling you right now, disagree with me or don't, but the days of a small market team winning an NBA championship are over. They're over. The, the, the chance of a, a 2004 Pistons team winning an NBA championship are over. Forget it. It's going to be major market teams every single year. And it's going to be super teams every single year and the bottom half of the league are going to be nothing but placeholders to develop rookies and if you're a fan in that town we don't care we don't care then quit being a charlotte hornets fan and get a lakers jersey and be a laker fan that's the way the league looks at it because under this current agreement you can have a team like the knicks a couple of years ago were the worst team in basketball and had the biggest profitable revenue margin in the league why would they change anything Now, here's the one and only thing that makes the league nervous. Here's the one and only thing that makes the league nervous. All the money they're making, this is all based on profits, right? All the money that they're making, because they're making a ton of money, $8 I think $9 billion last year, which was the most, what was down from the year before because of COVID, but the previous year, the most money they had ever made, $9 billion. Here's where they get nervous. The regular season games aren't bringing in a ton of dough for the for the NBA, even with the TV deals, right? Because there's just too many games that are, are disparaging advantage for like the Lakers against Memphis again, for lack of a better example. You know, nobody's watching that trash. Nobody's tuning in to watch that. Regular season TV deals are down. They're not, they're not the main source of income. Here's where the NBA is killing it. The money they're charging for the postseason to be carried on networks is going through the roof every year. And that's great for them. And why is it going through the roof every year? Because everybody's finally tuning in because you want to see these super teams battle each other. Doesn't happen a lot during the regular season. They're in the playoffs. They got to, right? Super teams are battling each other. They can charge billions for those TV rights on that. And here's where the NBA is getting nervous. Because like last year, when the Clippers get knocked out, oh man, we're all their eggs in the basket of, we're going to murder the ratings and we're going to murder money. When the Lakers are playing the Clippers in the, in the Western Conference Finals. Well, guess what? It didn't happen. Now, I think that's going to be a rarity that it's not going to happen. But last year was a little bit of a wake-up call for the league of, oh, we can't just keep printing money and ignoring this issue, okay? What's going to happen this year if another super team gets knocked out? What's going to happen to the NBA's model this year if the Jazz, who's the best team in the league right now, I mean, they got Donovan Mitchell. I couldn't name another guy probably, right? What's going to happen when the Jazz, who's the best team in the league right now, makes a run into the Western Conference Finals and maybe knocks off the Lakers? And then you've got an NBA Finals that's the Jazz against maybe uh, Milwaukee or Philly. That going to bring in a ton of dough? No. Should it? Yeah. I'd be interested to watch that. I'd be really interested to watch that because I enjoy the game, right? 
But are the masses going to want to watch that? No. And why are they not going to want to watch it? Not because they don't like Utah or Donovan Mitchell or, or they don't like Giannis as much or the Bucks or whatever. That's not why they're not going to tune in. They're not going to tune in because they've been promised. We're going to see Brooklyn Nets, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and James Harden take on LeBron, AD, and the Lakers. Get ready for that. And, oh, are we gassed up to watch that. Well, guess what if it doesn't happen? Ratings go down, and you bet all that money on that. This is just not a good formula for business moving forward. It's got a high upside. It's got a giant upside, and they've been cashing in on it. But, man, this thing is on some rickety table legs, and it's ready to crash. So that circles us back to the Deshaun Watson. Uh, you know, the deal's different in the NFL. It's not going to have that that um, effect immediately. I get that. Didn't have that effect immediately in the NBA either. You can see that this thing started in motion in the mid-90s, really started to be solidly solidified as a, a business plan moving forward around 2012, okay? And it took basically a decade before we're at a place right now where we all feel like, well, most fans feel like, hey, this is great. The game is great right now. And really, it's just folding up shop behind closed doors. All right. This Deshaun Watson thing has the possibility to blow the doors off the NFL and head down this road. If all these guys start getting these no trade con clauses in their contract, start demanding to be traded to these major markets for these super teams, you know, it's going to take a little more than a decade in a league before your fans and smaller places like, you know, Jacksonville or Tennessee. Really competitive team every year, pretty much Tennessee, you know, pretty good fan base. But how long until they can't maintain keeping any superstars because these guys want to be in New York or they want to be in L.A. or they want to be in Chicago where Russell Wilson supposedly supposed to be going? You see what I'm saying? So once these guys start holding out, creating these super teams, chasing Super Bowls and building their brand in these major markets like that, how long until the small market owners in the NFL get talked into by the bigger owners, a la Jerry Jones and the Cowboys, into, guys, if you just listen to us and go down our road, we'll help you start making money again. You're losing money now. You want to make some money? Agree to this deal. Let's change the revenue sharing. Let me keep some of my own money I make off the Cowboys in my own coffers, and I'll share some of my profit with you. Any small market teams are then forced to say, well, we have to because we can't maintain this anymore. We can't make money anymore because the Cowboys or the Patriots up in Boston are stealing all the good players all the damn time with these super teams. I mean, you see how it starts and where it goes. So keeping a close thing, eye on this Watson thing, you know, and I'm not, you know, crying the sky is falling. I'm pointing out to you very specifically and factually what has happened in the NBA and we've all had a blind eye to it and what can start happening in the NFL here. And the NFL is the best product in professional sports. If they start heading down this road, it's going to get bad. Now, our final order of business on this episode, NCAA football recruiting and how it's being crushingly affected by the pandemic and how the NCAA has no idea how to handle it at all. Now, this is something that I'm paying very close attention to because my son is a junior in high school. Uh, he's a pretty decent football player. Uh, you know, he's a big kid. He's like 6'2", 300. Any coaches out there listening? He's like 6'2", pushing 300, about 280. And he's the starting center and starting long snapper at Calabasas High School in California. It's a pretty good football program on California, if you're aware of that. But anyway, uh, pay attention to this thing because he's going to be going down this road here as a junior and a senior. Now, 
all this information I'm going to give you is coming from very reliable sources. This stuff is coming from top end division one coaches, big 10 and et cetera. And I'm going to explain it to you really quickly how it's being affected. Okay. So in order to understand what's uh, going on going forward here, and I'm going to keep this quick for you. Uh, if you follow college football and recruiting, you understand that uh, every division one football program was allotted 85 scholarships. Okay. You're only allowed to have 85 guys on full scholarship. All right, and for Division II, they're allowed to have so many guys on full, but then they split them into halves. You can have half scholarships, blah, blah, blah. But you only allotted so many in either. Either way. Now, for this past football season that they decided to play in the pandemic, if you're aware, the NCAA stated players could opt in or out, okay? But whether you opted in or out for the season, it did not cost you a year of eligibility. So if you sat out this year because you were scared of the pandemic, you get an extra year of eligibility. It didn't count. If you played this year, you get an extra year of eligibility, it didn't count. So all your fourth and fifth year seniors that were on the team this year that aren't guys that are going to the NFL, which, mind you, is 97% of college football players, um, they get an extra year to come back and play again next year. If you were a freshman this year on scholarship, redshirt freshman came in, this was your first year in the fall, you're still a freshman, first year, redshirt again, okay? That being said, the recruiting class that comes in this year is now lumped together with that freshman class and what you would normally have maybe 20 guys on a scholarship and a freshman class at a major division one program you now have 40 all the same year of eligibility okay you now have this backlog of seniors that are sticking around for another year right so how does that affect teams you've already reached your 85 scholarship limit what are you supposed to do for recruiting this, this has caused a major problem. What about these kids in high school that are, are looking forward to getting recruited now and looking for scholarship offers, okay? Now, they're not out there. And let me explain to you how the trickle-down works here with the new transfer portal, okay? If you're unfamiliar, the transfer portal, it used to be in college football, especially Division One level. You could not be approached by coaches from other programs to transfer to their program. That's tampering. You can't do that, right? You used to, if you wanted to transfer, you had to approach the AD and request a release from the team, and then he would have to go to the conference and request a release from the conference for you to be able to transfer. And then once all those those were cleared, you were allowed to transfer you where you wanted. Now, you were not allowed contact with other coaches, so if you wanted to leave Michigan because you weren't playing and you wanted to go down to Auburn, you just had to do it. Now, I'm sure they were talking backdoor, but you weren't allowed to talk to them. Now, with the new transfer portal, you're allowed to put your name into the transfer portal and coaches can actively recruit the transfer portal. So if you go to your coach, he releases you. You don't even, I mean, you got to get the clearance from the AD, but now it's basically just the coach says, yeah, I say, let him go. I don't, I don't need him. This kid can go into the transfer portal, and now every other school can actively recruit him the same way they would recruit a high scorer. They can call him. They can have a visit. They can do all kinds of stuff to try to get this kid to their program. Why is that important? Well, let me tell you why. Because in August, when the NCAA decided that it would not cost players a year of eligibility to play this year, and everybody would get an extra year. It was a free year this year. You could go ahead and play. When they decided that in August, the athletic director from West Virginia, Shane Lyons, who also just happens to be the chair for the Football Oversight Committee in the NCAA, made this statement, quote, The eligibility issue, in my mind, this is a win for them. This is a win for the athletes. As administrators and coaches, we're going to have to deal with a potential backlog on the back end. But I'm very confident that we've done it in other situations in a yearly basis. It may be greater numbers, but we can work through that with the normal attrition you have on your rosters as well as discussions 
with athletes in the coming years about their playing time at your program and their interest and options in potentially transferring to other institutions, end quote. That's what this guy said at the very beginning of this thing. So what's he saying at the end of that statement right there? He basically laid the groundwork for something in college football, college athletics, period, that has been unprecedented to this point, unprecedented. Now, if you're familiar with how scholarships work, uh, your, your scholarship is a yearly scholarship. Most people think you get a full ride. It's like a four or five year scholarship. It's not how it works. You get a full, you get a full ride scholarship as a freshman and it's renewed every year. Now, something that's never happened in the past is revoking that scholarship, you know, outside of being arrested or something like that. Right. If a kid comes in and he's just not good enough and he's never even going to play and ride the bench and you decide, whoops, we made a mistake on this one. That kid still gets renewed every single year because you made an agreement to his mother in the living room. You're going to give the kid the scholarship. Right. Nobody's ever rescinded those or gone back on those. Right. This guy has now set precedent for these coaches to approach guys in the locker room and given the tool of the transfer portal is now allowed to say, uh, hey, uh, Jimmy. It's been three years, man. Look around. You're still on the depth chart. You're probably not going to play here, right? I don't care that you got three years worth of credits at the school and the objective is for you to get a degree and only 97% of you are not going to play uh, pro football. It uh, doesn't matter to me about you getting that degree. What matters to me is you should be able to play somewhere. Why don't you jump in the transfer portal and then you can go somewhere else where you can play? What do I care if you got to start over education-wise and your credits don't transfer? Because for me, it frees up a scholarship and I can bring another guy in which can help me be more competitive because you're not as good as I thought you were. That's what's happening. So now these coaches, this has never been done, are, are doing this because not only are there, is their hand being forced, if you're already at 85 scholarships and you got no scholarships to bring in these freshmen this year in this class that you want to bring in, you got to free up some, so you got to go to them. But don't let them hide behind that. The bottom line here is being competitive. Okay, this opens the door for them to clean up the roster of the mistakes they made in scholarships. Okay, they have no loyalty to these kids. But let me explain to you why it's even a bigger problem than just that. Okay, let's say all these fifth-year seniors, they stay this year, correct? Um, now, if you're a school like Clemson or you're a school like, you know, uh, um, Alabama, you've got 20 guys leaving to try and go into the draft. You know what I'm saying? you got 10 legitimately probably getting drafted and 10 more that are going to try to get uh, rookie deals and, and shit like that. You've got 20 guys that are leaving. Okay, so you're going to you got 20 free scholarships to bring in. How many schools fall in that category? Not many. I mean, in his statement, he's saying, oh, through normal attrition, normal attrition. You know how many Division one programs are 117? Uh, maybe 10 of them have enough attrition every attrition every year to, to bring in 20 new scholarships next year. Okay, the rest of them, they don't have that leeway. So they have to talk to these kids about getting into the portal to leave their team so that they can try to bring new guys in. You know, your, your lower end Big Ten schools, your Indianas, your Michigan States, your, you know, uh, Pac-12 schools, you know, your Arizona States and stuff like that. They've got to ask guys to get into the portal to free up scholarships so that they can try and continue to be competitive. Now, here's the trickle down. Jim Harbaugh at Michigan goes into the locker room and tells, you know, Jimmy, hey, it's your third year. You're no good. You're not going to play here. Why don't you get in the portal so I can get a scholarship back to bring in some guys? Jimmy gets in the portal. Well, all the lower-end schools, uh, like uh, lower-end Division One schools, like let's say a Fresno State, do you think that a guy that's a second, third stringer at Michigan or third stringer that's not going to play could maybe go to Fresno State and compete for a, a starting a starting position? 
Yeah. Do you think he could go to San Jose State and, and compete for a starting position? Yeah. You know what I mean? Could he go out to the Mountain West and compete to start? Yeah. So where are these schools now recruiting? Well, they're jumping right onto that portal. I'm going to recruit all these guys that are walking away from Notre Dame and Alabama and, and that want to go somewhere and play. If I can bring them in to play at my school, I'm going to get better. Why bring in a 17, 18-year-old kid I got to try to develop that's a risk and I don't know if he can play? This kid's already at that school and he's a third stringer at high-end football. He'll probably play for me. I'm going to get that kid. Okay, so now Jimmy gets recruited by uh, Fresno State. He goes out to Fresno State. Well, now the kid that was second string at Fresno State is buried on the depth chart and he's not going to play. Well, Fresno State wants that scholarship so they can offer it to somebody else. Now they tell that kid, hey, you're not going to play. Why don't you get in the portal? The kid from Fresno State jumps in the portal. He's in the portal. Who's recruiting him now? Mac school, maybe? Somebody in the Mac? Maybe Akron? Uh, maybe, you know, Troy State down south? Maybe uh, Tennessee Chattanooga? You know, anyway, you follow my point. So this kid goes there. Now the kid from Tennessee Chattanooga is in the portal. Well, now the Division II coach wants to grab this guy. He's a legitimate Division I backup at a Division I. You know, he can come into my Division II and play. And you see where I'm going with this. Now he's at the Division II school. And now the kid at the Division II school is not going to play. So now he's in the portal. Now you got Division III coaches looking in the portal to bring in a Division II guy to make their team better. This is just a trickle-down effect. And now there is no place. There is no place for these kids coming out of high school unless you're some kind of stud. And that's everybody's answer to this thing all the time is, well, if they're good enough, they'll get the scholarship, blah, 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 blah. And no, they're still going to give scholarships. Yeah, they're going to give scholarships to kids who are studs. That's not everybody. That's not everybody. Matter of fact, the mass majority, the vast majority of kids in this bubble of getting scholarships and stuff are not the studs. You were talking about the three to five percent. Okay. The rest of these kids are not, you know, that the scholarship program in NCAA football, uh, 97% of the kids that play in there under scholarship are not going pro, man. This is about getting an education and getting ahead in life without having school loans and getting yourself a diploma. And for the most part, getting out of dire urban situations and neighborhoods and maybe family situations, uh, poverty situations, things that can better your life. Okay, 97% of the kids involved in this, their lives are bettered by getting these degrees for the sports that they can play. This isn't about who's pro and who's going to be good and your Clemsons and your studs in high school. They're going to be taken care of, the 3% will be taken care of. Okay, we're talking about the vast majority here that is now affected. And there is no place for these kids now. There is no place for these young kids in this junior 2022 class and next year's, I'm sorry, yeah, the junior 2022 class. And the following year, the 2023s, this is going to be a problem. Okay. Your 2021s are already screwed. Those kids coming out this year are screwed unless you're a stud, but the next two years is going to trickle down and be the same thing. So the NCAA has screwed this thing up majorly and it's high schoolers that had chance to better their lives and change their families legacy in the most part, change their family situations for the most part are going to be screwed over by this. They got to do something to fix it. They got to award some extra scholarships or try to flatten this thing out over the next bunch of years because this is ridiculous. But that's what's going on if you're unaware. That's how college football recruiting is screwed right now, man. So I know we went a little over this time, man. We're at about an hour and a half. I'm getting the wrap here. So anyway, I felt that was important to bring up and to address because it's a big problem in sports right now that nobody's aware of. Nobody's really aware of, and that's what's going on. But anyway, man, I'll let you guys get going. I thank you so much for listening again. We'll try to get one out quicker next week, trying to get some guests together here. And uh, tune in, man. We'll see you next time.